All right, everyone, strap in. We're back in 90s territory, and this one's a doozy. There is so very much to the making of 1995's Waterworld that it's honestly amazing it made it to the big screen at all. Inflating budgets, inflating egos, endless rewrites, and a couple of actual hurricanes brought us a film that is wildly divisive and wildly, just wildly extra. But before we get into it, let's crack a beer, spoilers ahead, and shout out to my brother-in-law, John, for this recommendation. This is the Movie Brewer Podcast. So my beer today is Weird and Gilly by Single Cut Beersmiths. Single Cut was founded in 2012 by a man named Rich Buschetta, an avid home brewer who eventually left his job in marketing to pursue his dream of brewing beer. Single Cut is named after a kind of guitar. A single cut style is a kind of guitar that has only one indentation cut away uh, to reach the higher frets. There's also double cuts, you know, that have the cut in both sides. Most of their beers have a loose connection to music, uh, you know, something that Rich is very passionate about. Things like Hop Sounds, which is a play on the Beach Boys album Pet Sounds, Eric Moore Cowbell, I think that one's kind of self-explanatory, and Weird and Gilly. This is the one I have in front of me. Weird and Gilly is actually a nod to the song Ziggy Stardust by David Bowie. In one of the opening lines, uh, Ziggy played guitar and jamming good with Weird and Gilly and the Spiders from Mars. The beer itself is a double dry hopped IPA. Uh, it looks to be about 6.6% alcohol, uh, 70 IBUs. And uh, I'm actually really excited for this one. Single Cut has a, a very special uh, connection for me. I've been there a few times back when I lived in New York. And it's described as a juicy beer. Juicy has become a bit of a buzzword in the craft brew industry in the past few years. Uh, so, I'm going to crack this and we'll see we'll see how we like it. God, that was a terrible pour. Uh, okay, so we're going to take a look here. It's got a very hazy, light, light yellowish color to it. I can't see through the glass, really. Uh, you know, a, a good amount of haze. The head on it is very lacy. It's There's a lot of head on it, but I kind of poured a terrible pour, so I don't really want to judge it on that. The big thing here is the aroma. I As soon as I cracked this, the, the tropical fruit smell filled the whole booth and is very, very enticing. Uh, so I'm going to take a sip and we'll see how it goes. You know, I was poking fun at the phrase juicy, but that's a very adequate description of, of how this tastes. If ever there was a beer that tasted exactly like it smells, I would say this would be it. And it's really well balanced. You can definitely tell it's an IPA. But again, and I feel like I say this with all the IPAs I review, it's not really a kick-in-the-teeth IPA. It's just kind of nice, subtle, with a really uh, 
fruity, juicy taste to it. So I'm going to keep drinking this. Now, please enjoy the greatest transition ever as we talk about something else that is weird and slightly gilly, the 1995 film Waterworld. As always, I'm going to start us off with a brief synopsis and we'll go from there. So here we go. In the beginning of the 21st century, the polar ice caps melt and cover the earth in water. Humanity is scattered across an endless sea, existing in small, isolated floating communities. Our hero, the Mariner, played by Kevin Costner, drifts from community to community, trading and doing what he can to stay afloat. All this changes when he finds himself with two unwanted passengers who help him escape from a hostile man-made island. Uh, Helen, played by Jan Triplehorn, and Enola, played by Tina Majorino, are relentlessly pursued by the evil smokers, led by Deacon, played by Dennis Hopper, and the three team up to try and decipher Enola's tattooed map to the legendary myth of dry land. So the history of this movie is long and complicated. It really begins with Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, in 1981. After Mad Max, we got a long slew of knockoff films, of films that are the same post-apocalyptic wasteland kind of worlds with a twist. And Waterworld is no exception. In 1986, a man named Brad Crevoy uh, and his company New Horizon Pictures were looking to churn out quick and easy Mad Max ripoffs for about $3 million a pop, not looking to make the greatest films ever, looking to cash out on this trend that a lot of people were going to the movies to see. $3 million. I want you to remember that number. So Brad hires a man named Peter Ratter, who pitches the idea of Mad Max on water and is immediately laughed out of the room. They say, hey, look, filming on water is insane. It would cost us at least $5 million to make this movie. So we're up $2 million from the original $3 million that they were looking for. But Ratter decides to write it anyway. He had recently been looking for projects to direct and was kind of dismayed by the productions he was seeing and more to the point, dismayed by the scale of the projects that he was being limited to. When you're making three or $5 million films, you're usually limited to one or two locations, nothing huge, nothing expansive. So he found the idea of writing this massive script kind of appealing, kind of liberating. And honestly, with that, I can really sympathize. There are so many times when I sit down to try and write something and I'm like, well, where could I shoot this? Where would I find these kind of props, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea of writing something that was completely ridiculous, completely beyond any scope he could ever hope to imagine was appealing. So 1986, he writes it out, never really does anything with it. It sits on a shelf until 1989. When he picks it back up, gives it a polish, and starts to shop it around to a, a few different producers, etc., things like that, he gets a few different nibbles on it. One of them even comes close to actually getting produced, but nothing really, really takes until in 1992, when Kevin Costner and would-be director Kevin Reynolds first show interest in the film. Now, those two have had quite the history together. They first met on the first film that Reynolds directed, a film called Fandango in 1986, and had also collaborated briefly on Dances with Wolves, which is one of Costner's epics. But more importantly, they were big collaborators on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. 
they came at that project with a lot of good intentions and good ambitions, uh, but clashed heavily on various points, not the least of which is Kevin Costner's insane British accent in that film. So working together on that film kind of ruined their relationship. But in 1992, they were approaching Waterworld independently of each other. Neither really knew that the other was interested until there was a producer named Larry Gordon. Larry Gordon was then the head of Largo Pictures, and he was a big proponent that, hey, the Kevins were the team to bring on board to make Waterworld happen. Gordon sat them both down, had them work through their issues, and get to a place that they thought, hey, this can happen, we can work together with this, we can find a way to get this film done. Uh, This is probably the first sign of a larger problem to come. When you start out by saying, hey, director, star, let's figure out a way that you two don't want to never work together again, maybe not the best foot to start on. But hey, we're moving on. Ratner, at this point, had done six or seven drafts of the film, and the Kevins wanted much more control. So when Universal officially bought the script and the Kevins were officially brought on board, Radner was dismissed and some sweeping changes to the script started coming. They hired screenwriter David Tui, who's probably most known for the Harrison Ford epic The Fugitive, and he made the film a little less weird and a little more gilly. Let me explain. Originally, in Radner's script, The Mariner, Kevin Costner's character, originally had a much larger boat that for whatever reason, he hid, hid a white horse on. This is a film that's set entirely on water and Kevin Costner's character has a white horse that he hides. Yeah, so that was cut out and we got a little less weird But also, this is the point in the script where Kevin Costner's character develops gills uh, so he can breathe underwater. So a little bit more weird, maybe, and a little bit more gilly. This is the part where I pause for a dramatic sip so that listeners can remember the name of the beer that we're drinking. So at this point... With this script underway, Universal officially greenlights the project with a budget of $65 million. Remember, originally, we were looking at a project here for $3 million, so we've gone up by $62 million. Before we get too far into the actual production itself, I do want to take a moment and talk about the cast. Uh, The cast that is assembled for this film is not huge in terms of big names, but it's huge in terms of its overall scope. There are 54 main actors credited in this film, and that doesn't count the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of extras and stuntmen who appear in the film. The main cast reads as follows. We have our leading man, the Mariner, in Kevin Costner. He is the biggest star by far on the film. He's known at this point for dozens of movies, things like The Bodyguard, Field of Dreams, and most recently, his four-hour epic, Wyatt Earp, that, and this will come into play later, was four hours long. We also get Gian Triplehorn, famous at the time for Basic Instinct and The Firm. 
who you may also know now from her role as Barb on HBO's Big Love. I know that's a little outdated at this point, he says as he's reviewing a 1995 movie. But that's probably the closest she's ever come to the pop culture zeitgeist uh, that you may have heard of. We also get Tina Majorino, uh, who plays young Enola, who was only nine at the time of filming. And I got to give her credit. She would spend hours in the makeup chair having that map to dry land tattoo applied every morning. That's a lot of patience for a nine-year-old actress. She also had some appearances on Big Love, but you no doubt know her best from her role as Deb in Napoleon Dynamite. I swear I spent the first 45 minutes of this film staring at her going, what do I know her from? And then it clicked and my mind was blown, as I hope I've just blown your mind. Moving on, we also get Dennis Hopper as the big bad deacon. Hopper had just finished Speed, and of all the cast, he was the most excited to spend a couple of months filming in Hawaii. There are multiple reports of people being stressed out and frustrated, et cetera, et cetera, and him being like, hey, it's cool. Um, he did also spend a lot of time golfing on this film, so I suppose one has to take that into account. Um, and then the rest of the cast rounds out with a bunch of actors from tiny parts here and there that you probably would know their face, but maybe not necessarily their name. Um, Michael Jeter, Jack Keller, Kim Coates. And this one blew my mind when I rewatched this film. Jack Black is in this movie. He plays the pilot. It is an almost nothing part, but it's really fun to rewatch this movie and try and spot Jack Black floating around in the background of all these big, bad, tough guy scenes. Oddly, compared to a lot of films that we've looked at on this podcast, the assembling of this cast seemed fairly easy, and for that I give massive props to the casting director, David Rubin, a casting legend in his own right, with films like Men in Black, Get Shorty, Matilda, Yes Man, and probably most recently well-known for Big Little Lies on HBO. But yeah, quite Quite the cast we've assembled before we go into the chaos that is the production of Waterworld. So, right out the gate, our $65 million budget. Again, $62 million up from where we started. Balloons to $100 million. And a lot of that has to do with the cost of shooting on water. It's not a good idea. The production looked at a couple places to record uh, Australia in the Gulf of Mexico, but eventually landed in Hawaii. And they filmed off of the north end of the Big Island of Hawaii. This is a very remote location. When you do a film like this, there's a lot of logistics that you wouldn't really think of being necessary, but become quintessential. Things like transportation. No one ever thinks about a film and goes, wow, that must have had a huge transportation budget. But you can't make a film if you can't get your gear there or your cast there or things like that. And this is a thing that the residents of Hawaii knew. And the vendors in that area took every advantage 
that they could get. They nickel and dimed the production for every little thing they could. Transportation became incredibly expensive. Food became incredibly expensive. And then you add to the fact that all of this is taking place not on the island, but just offshore. The biggest cost in the pre-production was the creation of the offshore atoll set. We're talking about the first community that the Mariner comes to and trades and first picks up his stowaways. This set costs about $5 million to make. I'm going to come back to that later, though. The producers Jeffrey Muller and Andrew Light originally expressed concerns as they approached production that these costs would be only the beginning, that things would spiral wildly, and none of those concerns were heeded. The studio was convinced that everything was going to go fine. They were confident in their budget and their director. And Mueller and Light were not so politely asked to leave the picture. They still retained their executive producer credits. And I believe their lawyer ended up getting them about 150% of their original contracted salary. But yeah, they were unceremoniously dismissed which is totally fine. They went on to go and make The Cable Guy, which, hey, can't can't fault them for that. But yeah, shooting on water, not the best idea. It's also important to note that at this point, while we were ramping up into production, there were still issues with the script. The Kevins were not agreeing. Costner wanted an intimate character piece about the Mariner, and Reynolds wanted a large sweeping epic. And the issues between the two were not getting resolved and they were coming up on production without a locked script. So, as films often do, they brought in a script doctor to sort of give it a little punch up, make sure that everything flowed and get them locked for production. The man they brought in to punch up the script had recently done a lot of solid work on the film Speed, uh, starring Keanu Reeves and Dennis Hopper. Hey, uh, his name is Joss Wheaton. And I'm willing to bet that that might be a name that perks your ears up a little bit. He's most known these days as the director of the original Avengers. Um, but back in these days, he was just, just a script doctor. And he was originally contracted for one week of script edits, which extended itself into seven weeks. At this point, we're starting to see a little bit of a trend going on here, but we have not yet begun. With no locked script in place, production starts. And as we could probably guess, things did not go well. As they had already started to learn, shooting on water is not a good idea. They ran into constant issues. They had camera boats that would float away out of their starting position, and they'd have to take the time to reset to one. Wind and tides would shift completely and unexpectedly and change the entire setup, relocate all kinds of actors and sets, etc. People were getting seasick constantly. And also, people can't breathe underwater. That's an important point when you're making a film on water. There are more than a few instances of cast and crew going into the water and almost drowning. And this includes stars Jan Triplehorn and Tina Majorino. 
There was an incident where the boat they were on hit some turbulence. They were thrown clear and almost run over by the boat that they were riding. There was a stuntman that got lost and almost swept out to sea on his morning commute from a local island. There was a stuntman who almost died from a brain embolism when surfacing from an underwater dive. And even the star Costner was was not immune. There was an incident when the wind picked up and pulled the ship that he was alone on away from the rest of the production and he had to be rescued. Yeah, shooting on water, not a great idea. But anyway, all of these issues are bad, but the biggest issue was still with the Kevins. During the production, they seemingly can't agree on anything. There's very specific differences in how they want to approach the movie. And these issues and these delays and these complications led to a lot of the crew members either quitting or being fired. There would be disagreements about timing and where resources should be spent that would end up with resignations. You hear all the time about productions falling apart because of, quote, creative differences. And this film is what happens when you jam those productions through anyway. So yeah, this film, from the get-go, not going great with the production. And with all these delays, the production timeline of this film has to get extended. And with that extension, the production schedule comes into conflict with something else that's already scheduled in Hawaii. Hurricane season. The waters on Hawaii's Kona shore are always troublesome. But because of the delays and the timing that they found themselves in, the production had to shut down three different times for tsunami warnings. And during one particularly bad storm, much to the filmmaker's horror, the $5 million offshore atoll set sank. The storm took it out, it was destroyed, and sank into the sea. Woof. This led to a salvage operation, some rebuilding, all at cost, and a whole lot of rewrites. Rewrites in a script that was already being torn to pieces by its director and star. I'm getting sad just thinking about all this stuff. I'm going to take another sip of beer. So with all this going on, they also had massive issues with crew morale on set. The constant delays and extensions were problem enough, but lots of the crew were housed in uninsulated pop-up housing on the on the island, while Costner and Hopper were put up in resort housing, costing reportedly around $4,500 a night, which when you're freezing cold in the middle of the night and you find out the next day that the star was ordering takeout, ah, rough. That's tough on morale. So overall things not so great. Just, just bad. I don't envy any of the crew on this film, but we're going to top it off. We're going to add one more thing. You ready? About halfway through the production, Kevin Costner announces that he's getting divorced from his then wife, Cindy Silva. They'd been married for 16 years and that was it. And I'm sure there's nothing like working with a movie star who's just realized that his marriage is falling apart. But in a silver lining kind of moment, this actually re-solidified the Kevins. 
Reynolds had also recently been through divorce and could empathize. It's a band-aid on top of a gushing wound, but it got them through. They struggled and they struggled, but mercifully, in early 1995, they wrapped production. What was originally supposed to be a 96-day shoot ended up at 166 days. For those playing the home game, that's five and a half months. Imagine spending the next five and a half months of your life being wet, being cold, and having everything you could possibly imagine go wrong. Sounds fun, doesn't it? But hey, we love making movies, and they got it in the can. So we move on to post-production, which is no treat either. They had originally planned for 10 weeks of edits, which is a fairly common timeline, especially for something of a larger size. You know, 10 weeks. Yeah, okay. But Universal Studios had it in their head that Waterworld was going to be their tentpole summer blockbuster and cut that 10 weeks down to five in an effort to make a July premiere date. So we're already under the gun. But they managed to get it done, and Reynolds' original cut comes in at 2 hours and 40 minutes. That is a long movie. Maybe not long for 2019 standards, but it's a long movie. It's far beyond the 2 hours and 15 minutes that the studio was hoping for slash kind of being insistent on. They kind of put their foot down and said, hey, this movie has to be 2 hours and 15 minutes long. Uh, And Reynolds was willing to try and bring the film down to that, but his plan to do so involved reshoots, and everyone at Universal Studios was not so happy about the idea of going back into the hell waters of Hawaii. Enter, once again, Kevin Costner. Costner convinces Reynolds to let him try and spend a day in the editing room and see what he could do, see if there's things that he could cut away. That day turned into more of a week and a little bit more, and the conflict between the two reignited, and ultimately Reynolds, much like he had with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, left the project. Left the project and left Coster to finish it on his own. Which, amazingly, he did. They were able to... uh, They were able to get it done. They were able to find their way. Waterworld was released on July 28th of 1995 and had quite a rough time with the critics. Horror stories from the production had been heavily featured in the press before the movie was even completed, and critics came in ready to bash it, and according to Costner, didn't go in with an open mind. Um, I, I think that's kind of what you'd say anyway, but... It was pretty universally universally bashed. To this day, it stands at a 45% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and not without reason. It was a fun enough ride, but it really does feel like a servant of two masters. And honestly, it really does come off as a direct ripoff of Mad Max. And that's what the critics felt, and it's never really outgrown that reputation, you know, there are so many people that consider Waterworld one of the worst movies of all time, which I don't fully agree with. Like I said, it's fun enough. You can follow along and you can feel what the Kevins were after. It just, 
it's one of those movies that doesn't quite deliver, but the scale of it is so massive that you kind of get sucked in anyway. It's opening weekend. It did $21.1 million, which is not great. You can have a small movie do $21.1 million and it would be considered not great. Let's do a little math in terms of the budget here. When all is said and done, the final budget of this movie is $176 million. We started at $3 million. We started at $173 million cheaper than we ended up. And then we're going to tack about an extra $60 million or so for marketing and distribution on top of that, giving us a final, final budget for this epic film of $235 million. We have a $21.1 million opening. Domestically, in its entire run, this film does $88 million. <sighs> a flop. Right? And yet, international markets, for one of the first times ever, nearly saves this film. This is one of the turning points in the film industry where international markets were actually able to save a film. Waterworld does $175 million internationally, which gives us a total of $263 million. And that, my friends, is above the final costs of the film. Huzzah! Huzzahs all around. And we're going to tack on home video there, DVDs, Blu-rays, and that puts us square in the profitable column. So, all in all, Waterworld is Waterworld. It's a high watermark, ha, I'm hilarious, of insane productions and one of the last great sweeping epics. This film could never be made today because as soon as they saw anything about filming on water, they'd say, well, we could probably do that with CG, right? Question mark. And it'd be an entirely different film. And that's Waterworld. A unique film in a unique time that's just an insane, insane production. When this film was made, as I said, it costs about $235 million to make. In 1995, that made it the single most expensive film ever made. And that's saying something. And that, my friends, is the first of the quick facts. Hey, we've brought it back to the quick facts. As anyone who's a reoccurring listener of this podcast knows, my quick facts here at the end are the little easily digestible notes that are worth remembering about this film. Uh, the second being that spot of most expensive film in history was taken from this film not two years later with the movie Titanic. Oh, look, another movie on the water. What else we got? Reynolds' two-hour and 40-minute cut was originally supposed to be released as a director's cut, but never officially happened until years later when fans of the film compiled all of the extended and deleted scenes that had leaked out into what became known as the Ulysses cut. Eventually, there was an extended edition released. I believe it was originally on the Blu-ray release of this film. 
And that cut was almost identical in most ways to the Ulysses cut. Sidebar, Ulysses is part of a deleted scene where that's kind of suggested that that's the name that the Mariner should take on as he's never actually named in the film. A video game of this film was made and released in Europe, but because the film A, bombed, and the video game was reportedly not very good, it was never released in the U.S., And then, like I said, the total gross of the theatrical run of this film was $88 million domestically, $175 internationally, so we're looking at $263 total. Domestically, it was the 10th highest grossing film of 1995, losing out to Batman Forever at $184 million, which, I'm going to say it, is one of my favorite Batman movies of all time. I'll fight you about it. Worldwide, it was the 9th highest grossing film. It lost that title to Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is the greatest Die Hard movie of all time. But Batman Forever, if you look at international numbers, actually drops to number six in the year. So that's what I got. I have been recording this podcast for a very long time now. Probably this is going to be the longest one thus far, uh, but this is by far the most complex film I've talked about on the Movie Brewer podcast. So I'm going to come back to my Weird and Gilly, which I've actually opened a second one of uh, because I've been talking for so very long. And I'm really enjoying it. It's very nice. It's very it's very easy to drink. The fruit isn't overwhelming. It's actually just a really nice sippable beer, which is probably why I've gotten so far into the second one. But anyway, Single Cut does have a special place in my heart. It was a brewery that me and my wife went to a few years back for my birthday, and I've kind of been obsessed with them ever since. Um, Drinking a Single Cut on my birthday has become a tradition thus far. Um, And it's worth noting that Single Cut was the first brewery to open in Queens since Prohibition. So I'm I'm glad to support alcohol, I guess. I don't know. I'm rambling at this point. So that's going to do it for episode nine of the Movie Brewer Podcast. As always, I am your host, Andrew Scott Willis. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to reach out. I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at The Movie Brewer. Uh, You can read my movie reviews on Letterboxd. You can read my beer reviews on Beer Advocate. And I hope you'll listen in next time when I take on a genre that I don't tend to watch a lot of. And to my brother-in-law, John... That was a hell of a recommendation, dude. Thanks for listening. This has been the Movie Brewer Podcast.